The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, page 986. <clears throat> Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you <clears throat> because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. <clears throat> for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from the heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. So good to see you guys. And a lot of new faces. Uh, we would love to connect with you. Again, please, if you're new here visiting, uh, take the welcome card, write it in. Um, but before we begin our text, let's go before the Lord and recognize his authority over his word and that he will bless our time together. Father God, I thank you so much because you have done so much for us. You have made yourself known to us and you have given us a message, Lord, that awakened us and filled us up with grace, filled us up with peace, and it filled us up with joy. I pray, Lord, that you would bless our time together. We are coming to you to sit at your table to hear a word from you. Lord, um, I just pray that you would help me, that you will help all of us as we listen to your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So before we dive into this text, I would like to give a brief background on the conversion of the church in Thessaloniki. So it was during their second missionary journey where Paul and his team, guided by the Holy Spirit, reached the capital Macedonia, the city called Thessaloniki. When Paul got there, it was already a political and commercial hub. Its location by the Aegean Sea made it a place and invited so many people to come and trade. The city had a blend of people with all different backgrounds and culture, which means that you had a blend of all types of worship. There was idol worship in that city. There was a synagogue for Jewish worship. Then there were people in the middle called God-fearing Greeks. And these are Gentiles who separated themselves from idols, and they attached themselves to a synagogue looking 
to worship the true God through religion. Although they had all kinds of religion and all kinds of idols, they did not have a gospel message. There was no salvation in the whole city. No idol can offer what God can. And no religion can produce in you what only God can produce. The city, it was living, but it was living in the dark. When Paul entered the city, according to Acts 17, he sought a synagogue, as was his custom. And for three Sabbaths, it reads, Acts 17, verses 2 to 3, He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, at this point, since he's in the synagogue, he's using their scriptures. They're in agreement. Yeah, we believe that. The Christ is going to come. He's going to die and rise again. Then Paul delivered the punch and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Finally, in the darkness of the city, inside this synagogue, a spotlight shining on a name that would bring them salvation. The name of Jesus was identified as the one who would come and take away their sins so that we will have peace with God. Well, this message of the gospel brought two different reactions. One reaction, God uses this message of the gospel to convert and save people, no matter their background, their language, their tongue. So one message, it saved a group of people. Here are the people that were persuaded and followed Paul. Some of the Jews were persuaded. A large number of the God-fearing Greeks, those Gentiles who separated themselves from idols. And a large number of leading women. These three groups of people formed the first church in Thessaloniki. With the same message, however, it brought another reaction. It brought hostility, rejection, fear of losing everything they built their life on. We read that the Jews became jealous of this new church that was starting. So what they did was they went into the marketplace, found a couple of people, a lot of people, and they were telling them, hey, those men that are changing the world are in our city, and they're going to change our city. They're going to flip it upside down. Let's get them out of here. So out of jealousy, a riot ensued, and Paul and his team were forced to leave the city and move on to the next city. They had to leave behind a newly born church to the onslaught of temptation and persecution. The newly born church was now a target for the devil and all his attacks on the people of God. They were completely surrounded, this church, and experienced affliction and suffering on account of the gospel. Paul, when he couldn't bear it anymore, he, he needed to find out about their faith. What happened to that church that I was forced to leave? He couldn't send an email and get a call back. It wasn't a quick communication. What he did was he sent one of his team members. He sent Timothy. Timothy, go and see how their faith, how are they? Is there any hope of restoring what was lost? 
We had to leave this newborn church. They, they, the, God, the word of God was so active in them. Timothy goes. And he comes back. And he tells Paul, Paul, their faith, it isn't fading. It's flourishing. They didn't go back to their idols. They didn't go back to old religion. They continue to hold on to the gospel. And not only that, Paul, they're growing. They're, they're going out and proclaiming the gospel to all the surrounding regions. And their hope in Jesus' return, Paul, it's as fresh as we have left it. After learning about what God has done in these people, Paul, filled with joy and thankfulness to God, he writes this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And from this text, we're going to see five things. Number one, we are going to see his prayer that he lifts up to God of thankful assurance of God's election for them. And then we will see the criteria God uses, sorry, the criteria that Paul uses to confirm the election in those believers. We will use that same criteria to evaluate if we have been chosen and elected by God. So the first, we're going to see the prayer of God, uh, of Paul thanking God for his election on these believers. Then we will use that same criteria that made Paul so sure about their election to use it for our own life to see if we're elected by God. And there are four things in that criteria. Number one, the gospel came to them in power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel came to them in power of the Holy Spirit. Criteria number two, the gospel is working in them. Criteria number three, there's eyewitness accounts of the gospel working through them. And number four, and the last one, they have continued hope in the gospel promises. The gospel came to them in power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel's working in them. Eyewitness accounts of the gospel working through them and continued hope in the gospel promises. We will begin with verse one. Notice the authors, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, This is a team that was well known back in the day that they would risk their lives for the gospel. Uh, They they love the gospel and they are willing to risk their lives for it. But you will notice that Paul in this letter and in 2 Thessalonians does not write an apostle of Christ. He found no reason to defend his apostleship. Paul was so welcomed by this church that they accepted and received what he said as the word of God. Let's see uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul writes later on in this book, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. There was no doubt that Paul and his team came with a message from God and the church of the Thessalonians accepted it and received it as the word of God. Now notice who specifically he is writing to. He writes to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word church here 
means a group of people called to meet in a certain place. A group of people called to meet in a certain place. The term was then given to the church because the church was so often meeting and gathering that now when we think of church, we think of a body of believers coming to meet and worship God. But notice their actual location. To the church of the Thessalonians, where? In God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This word in reflects, it means uh, rooted in, it means living in, drawing life from God. It means that a people who are living in the sphere of God, these people who are living their life with a worldview of God, and they are depending on God, and every choice that they're making is based on who God is, these are the people Paul is writing to. These are the people who are elect by God. Notice he's not saying in a specific church building. The church is not a building. It's not stone and wood. The, the church are people who, are, who believe in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are in God. Now notice also which God he's identifying. The God of the God in God the Father is identified by the second person in this line, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Paul is very specific and he lists the three offices of Jesus Christ here. To have the true God, you must have a, a deity, a, a God, Jesus. To have the true God, you must have the Lord Jesus. He is, this speaks to his deity. Okay? Notice when he's writing in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he elevated Jesus Christ to the same level as God the Father. Jesus speaks to his humanity. He is truly God and truly man. And notice Christ. Christ is the office of Jesus where he is the promised one, the promised king to come and save his people from their sins. If you have God the Father, you must have the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have God without the Lord Jesus Christ. And then grace to you and peace. Now we will look at where Paul directs his prayer to, his, his prayer of thankfulness. In verse 2, he writes, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Paul writing, he's including his whole team. He is giving thanks to God. God, because God is the one who initiated the work in these believers. God, because he is the one who deserves all the credit for what he has done. Paul goes to God and thanks God for the work he's done in them. And look, Paul is not leaving anyone out. This is so great. When he's thinking of those who are in God the Father, the believers who are elected and who are working, he says all of you, from the smallest to the biggest, 
from the youngest to the oldest, from the immature in faith to the most mature in faith, Paul is thanking God for his work of salvation in every stage in these believers' lives. So, what are the first thoughts or feelings you have when you think of another believer in this room? Can we say with the Apostle Paul, when I think of you, my heart fills up with joy, my heart fills up with thanks, I give my thanks to God for the work he's doing in you? When you look around, do you acknowledge God, who is working in you, is also working in someone else? Are you lifting up thankfulness to God? Paul tells the church how he carries their memories of them from the time they spent together. But he picks out virtues that are evident that Christ is working in them. Let's read verse 3. Remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The work of faith here speaks to the living faith in them and the work it produces. If we could look at James chapter 2, we will see an example of living faith. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Their faith, as Paul remembers, was living faith. They, they were working for the church. Because this church was so heavily attacked by, God, uh, by uh, the devil, heavily attacked and afflicted, and they were experiencing great suffering, the people in the church were working and working. Their labor, the next thing he points out is labor of love. Because many in the church were heavily afflicted, love within and for the church couldn't be inactive. They were giving themselves for each other, and they weren't doing it with like an attitude or a, a barren kind of sense, expecting something in return from the people within the church. They were giving themselves. They labored hard because it was a hard time for them. Paul also remembers their steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus. This speaks of their unwavering hope of Jesus' return found in the gospel. So all of this can be summed up like this. Their continued work and labor for the church produced a living faith suited in love and inspired by the hope of the return of Christ. So this is a prayer he's lifting to God. He's encouraging them. He's encouraging them. I he's telling them, I've seen God work in you. I'm going to list out the best virtues that represents Christ in you. I'm going to lift those virtues up to God. And I'm thanking God I'm not thanking you, I'm thanking God because he's the one who's producing it in you. Paul is very thankful. Then, verse 4, he says this, 
For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul is using the doctrine of election here to bring comfort and motivation to the afflicted church to encourage them to maintain their hope in the gospel. What is the doctrine of election? First of all, it's not a doctrine that saves us, right? You don't need to believe in the doctrine of election to to be saved. It is a high doctrine, and it shows us the love of God. But what it is, it, it is the sovereign act of God's free will, by which before the foundation of the world, he determined to elect a certain group of people to be saved through Christ by grace alone. I'd like to draw your attention to Ephesians 1, 4 to 5. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to what? The purpose of his will. Election is sovereign. It comes from God to accomplish his will in his creation. It has, been, it has been determined in the mind of God who he will save from before the foundation of the world. It's not up to us or it's not in our place to go up to God and say, well, who God, who's saved and who's not? It's not for us to worry about. It is his sovereign act. It is from his free will. He gets to decide. Notice also election is free. Uh, We don't know the reason why God would choose a certain person or not. Uh, God didn't look from heaven and then try to find some good qualities in people and say, okay, because you're doing all these things, I'm going to pick you and save save you. No. We know that that election is free. It is based on his good pleasure to do so. We also notice that election is irreversible. That once God has determined to save somebody, he will save that person to the very end. He's not going to lose them. He will not, he, God will not cast them away. The people that he chose, he will not cast away. We also see that election is effective. Please turn to, or please look on to Romans 8, verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God begins with a call, and he will end it with glorification. Now, we know not everybody is saved, right? We can take a look in our world, and we could see from the fruit of people's lives that God has not chosen them. We can see that. Another thing I want to point out is election is personal. When Ephesians, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, he had names in his head of people he wanted to save and that he will save. 
Now, this is a high doctrine of God. You can search the scriptures and you will find this high doctrine of God and it's enriching and it's beautiful. But this is not the doctrine that if you believe in it, you're saved. If you don't, well, too bad. No. But Paul is using this doctrine to do something to this small, afflicted church in Thessaloniki. He is motivating them. He is encouraging them. He says, listen, guys, your faith is so evident, I can tell that God has chosen you. I can see it. It is living faith. Your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope. This, doesn't, didn't, this didn't come from you, from idol worship. This, this, this act of, of Christian living didn't come from you from worship in a synagogue or through religion and keeping rules and statuses. No, this is something brand new that happened inside of you that was divine. God has elected you. Notice also that the election of God is linked to his love. He said, beloved, loved by God. You were loved, if you're elected, you were loved before the foundation of the world. God had you in his mind and he wanted to set his love on you. He writes in verse 5, that he knew it, right? We know. It's evident to us. How did Paul know? How did Paul know? And this is where we're going to start listing off his criteria. And we're going to use that and, and evaluate our own lives. The first sign of God's election on your life is found in verse 5. He said, because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. The first reason why Paul knew that they were elected by God is because when the gospel came to them, it came with power. It came with divine power. There was almost a voice within a voice behind the message. There was almost a sword coming from the message to their own hearts. It came with power. The gospel has been proclaimed many times for many, many people. However, for some, for the elect, it was heard, or it is heard, with power. This power is the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to awaken someone to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when they hear the gospel. Again, this power is the power of God, the Holy Spirit, to awaken someone to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ when they hear the gospel. Look at uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? Power of God for salvation to who? Everyone who believes. Everyone who believes. The power does not come from the one preaching. Thank God. <laughs> The power is not from the music. The power is not from the prayers and the hymns. The power is not from encouraging words or stories. The power only comes from God in the gospel, the message of the gospel. Look, not everyone who hears the gospel is awakened by it. Okay? 
It is the one, the person who is elected, is, is the one whom the power of God is driving the message like a sword through your heart, and it reveals to you the reality of your sinfulness and, and bankruptcy before God with Jesus as your only hope for salvation. The one who then throws himself upon Jesus is the one who is elected by God. Can you share a story like this? Every believer can remember a moment when the gospel clicked and they saw the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us on the cross. For my life growing up, I've heard the gospel many, 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 many times. I was able to recite it to you. I was able to explain to you kind of the theology behind it. But it wasn't until I was reading the book of John where the Lord has awakened me to the reality of who Jesus is. And the fact that he didn't just come to die for sins, he came to die for my sins, your sins, specifically your sins. He came to die for them. When I realized this, I remember it was like a light shining in my room. Um, I went to my youth group leader at the time. I took him by the shoulders and shook him. Do you know who Jesus is? <laughs> he took away my sin. Has the gospel ever come to you with power of the Holy Spirit to awaken your soul to faith in the Lord Jesus? That is the first criteria Paul is using. He saw it. When he was giving the gospel, he saw the power it had on them. And he writes, it came with full conviction. They became believers in the gospel. Then the gospel started working in them. So now our second criteria, the gospel working. Verse 5 through 7, he writes, You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. First, we see the gospel working and confirmed in the ones preaching. They didn't just preach it, they lived it. The gospel isn't just a story, right? It has power to change a person. The gospel has the power to change their will, their motivations, their heart. This deep conviction in them, Paul writes, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Paul witnessed a radical change in these believers. He saw them become a new creation in the time he spent with them. So criteria number two. Can you say that about your life? Do you have it in your heart to want to be like the Lord? Obviously, no one can do it perfectly. I'm not, I'm not saying, do you follow the Lord perfectly and imitate him? Great. No. But is the direction of your heart desiring to imitate the Lord? Look, uh, this past week, my son Eli wanted to imitate me. 
He grabbed his Bible, he grabbed a laptop, his glasses, and told both my wife and I that he was going to work on his sermon. (laughs) I loved it. (laughs) It brought me joy to see that. But in the same way, do you find yourself filled with the love for God that you want to imitate him? Are you wanting to be compassionate towards others who are on the sidelines? Be sacrificial in your loving. Be loving towards your enemies, not cursing them, but blessing them. Always forgiving others. If your heart says yes, that you love the Lord and you want to be more like him, this is a sign that the gospel is working in you and you should be very encouraged that you are elected by God. So he also says, they received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. Remember, this church was being heavily afflicted, but there was a joy in them. It came from the gospel. The joy came from the gospel. It didn't matter how hard they were attacked and how hard they were persecuted. They will not let go of the gospel. They, th- that's where their joy came from. They've tried the idols, they don't work. They've tried the religion, it didn't work. The gospel came, they're hanging on to it because it works. The gospel brought them joy in the midst of affliction. So, when a person becomes awakened to the reality of the gospel and live that way, Paul... Paul is writing this, verse 7. You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. If someone were to ask me, hey, Habib, can you point out a church that is gospel-loving and has lots of gospel-loving and working people that you see kind of the work of God in them? Can you just point to an example of this? I will point them right here. We'll point them right here. This church has been a huge blessing in my life and in my family's life. I see the power of the gospel working in you. I've seen people desiring to want to be more like Jesus. I am thankful to God for you, for all of you. He has done a great work here And God is always going to do great work for his people. He doesn't just save someone and leave them on the sidelines. He's going to make it known. Others will see that he's working in you. So, so far we've seen Paul's prayer, thanking God for his election on them, and then the criteria Paul is using. So far the first one was the gospel came to you in power. It has awakened you to faith in Jesus. Number two, the gospel is working in you. You want to be imitating to the Lord Jesus. You want to imitate him here on earth. Number three, we saw, or number three, we will see now, the eyewitness accounts of other people confirming that God is working in you. He writes in verse eight and nine, 
For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The believers in, Thess- in Thessalonians have now become a pillar for the church. They have become an example to all the believers, showing how far the gospel goes and it works through someone. They were an, uh, they were an example of how far the gospel can go in and work on someone and change them. They are now spreading and proclaiming the word of the Lord to all the surrounding regions. They couldn't just keep the good news about Jesus. They wanted to go out and share and proclaim the word of the Lord to everyone. The the missionaries who visited the church and moved on to other cities bumped into Paul and started telling him, Hey, Paul, did you check out that church in Thessaloniki? God is doing a great work there. You see that, you see they had such a marvelous, altered life, filled now with grace, peace, faith, love, hope, and joy, all because the gospel of God using it to wake his elect up. Notice when they were going out, what they were proclaiming. They were proclaiming the same message they received from Paul and his teaching. They took one message around. They didn't take... Uh, music with them. They didn't take hymns like we said before. They took a message. Jesus Christ came to die for you on the cross. If you were to turn and put your faith in what Jesus did on the cross, all your sins have been paid for, and now you have peace with God. No matter what region they were in, that was the one message. And God uses that message to wake people up, to wake up his elect. There are some people who are going to hear that message and say, Psh, I don't care, move on. Not elect. But a person who hears that message and their heart flares within them. Elect. So the question is for us. Can people see the gospel working in you? And are you telling? And are you sharing the gospel with others? You know, this is the one message that can save a husband, a wife, a son, or a daughter, a father, a mother, a brother, sister, cousin, neighbor, friend, all the people that are coming in our, in our heads right now, we know they need to at least hear the gospel. This is the one message that will save them. They won't be saved by our good works and kindness towards them. They need to hear the gospel because, like we said before, the gospel has the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes in it. So the eyewitnesses of, the, of their faith in the Thessalonians, they pointed out to Paul, hey, Paul, they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Idols are counterfeit gods that are masters over your life. They can be anything that you make the ultimate thing to seek from it what only God can offer you. 
It can be whatever you find your identity and meaning and purpose of life in. That isn't God. You know, today we don't use figurines. You know, our idols are not visible. We don't kneel before them. It's not in our culture to do that. Our idols are more hidden. They're more deep within our soul. And it can be anything. It could be money. It could be money. You know, if, if, your, if your joy goes like the stock market, <laughs> you're finding your identity and hope and purpose in the money you have working for you. You're trusting that the money there is going to bring you true security. If I was to take away all your money, will your joy go? Will your meaning go? Will your purpose go? If your identity is in your beauty and you're so happy with how you look, I can't relate to that, but as you get older and your beauty fades, does your joy fade? Your purpose fade? Your meaning fade? You're now in distress? These are idols that creep up in our heart. And since we don't have them on the, you know, outside, they're inside. So it's easy to hide when we're around other people. But we should examine ourselves. See, the, the, the thing about the gospel, which is amazing, is that when it converts you, it changes your motivation, your affection. Now you, you really, you found your true joy and hope in Jesus. Notice, notice, notice this. Paul writes to them, look how he identifies God as opposed to the idols. It's, it's wonderful. He writes, living and true God. As opposed to what? What are, what are idols? Dead and false, meaningless. You're going to spend your entire life going after these idols. And in the end, it's all been a lie. It's all been air. People elect idols to worship, but God elects people to worship him. So when people see your life, are they going to see, wow, you know, you're so consumed with idols and you're so consumed with so much things of the world. Or can they say, wow, when I see you, you're living your life, you're consumed with Christ. You're consumed with him. If, you're, if you can say yes to that, be encouraged, church. You are elect. You are elect. So, now we have seen Paul's prayer of thankfulness, thanksgiving to, uh, of God's election. <clears throat> then we saw the criteria, the gospel coming to you in power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel is working in you, and there are eyewitnesses who can see the gospel working through you. Now, we will see the final criteria. You will have continued hope in the gospel promises. Paul ends his writing here in verse 10, and to wait for his son. You turn from idols, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus first came to earth from heaven 2,000 years ago 
to live a perfect life that God, that God his father would be pleased in, a son pleasing his father. Then God the father delivered his own son to the cross, nailed him to it, lifted up his son for the whole world to see. Then God put on Jesus all the sins of the elect. Then God the Father judged his precious son as the one who committed every sin that his people, the elect, has committed. Jesus went to trial and was accused by God and condemned by God as the one who committed all the sins we've committed. All our love for idols, all of our counterfeit gods that we have set up in our life. Jesus went to the cross and was condemned as one who committed all those sins. God crushed his own son under the weight of his holy wrath. Jesus dies and is buried by his disciples. But, like our text says, God raised him from the dead. Now he's in heaven. And we are now living in the hope of his return, even all these years later. From the church of Thessaloniki, till now, till going. Whenever he decides to come back, we're living in the hope of his return. It can come at any moment. And this hope that we have that Jesus will return, it motivates us to what? Work of faith, labor of love. You can continue your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. This gospel, you will continue to hang on to its promises. You will continue to hang on to his promises. Notice, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. First of all, wrath is coming. If you are of the elect, Jesus will rescue us from the wrath to come. This speaks from the, for the perseverance of the saints. Remember, if God saves someone, he's going to keep them safe all the way through. Jesus' return will be doom for some people. But for the elect, it will be deliverance and safety. The picture that I have of this, so we, we talk about the election. So why should we go out and tell people, you know, the gospel, if God has already elected them, then aren't they just going to come? God wants us to participate in sharing the gospel, right? He didn't tell us who was going to be saved. He just says, go, and I'll do the saving. So the picture, the, the image, the illustration I like to use comes from Paul Washer, and it's so helpful. Jesus right now has two hands. One hand he is offering you to come to him, and the elect will come to him. But with another hand, he ha- he's holding back the wrath of God. The door is bubbling, it's shaking, the locks are <laughs> going to come off its hinges. And Jesus is saying, come, with one hand. And the other, he's holding back the wrath of God. One day, beloved, one day, both those hands will come down. There will be no more offer of salvation. And the wrath of God will not be held back. Let's go to John 6, 37. 
all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Over here we see the divine election of God and human responsibility, both in the breath of Jesus. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Father is giving the Son. And whoever comes, I will never cast out. So the invitation is, come. Come to Jesus. Come be saved. Come believe in the gospel. Come receive forgiveness for all your sins. Come be made right with God. Come and find peace. Come and find hope. Come and find joy. Come and find love from the Father through the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never be part of the elect if you never come to Jesus. We saw the beautiful prayer of Paul filled with thanksgiving over God's election on the church. Then he provided a criteria, which was the gospel came to you not only in word, but with power of the Holy Spirit. The gospel working in us where we become and becoming imitators of the Lord. There are eyewitnesses of our faith working through us. And finally, we are continuing to hope in the gospel and its promises. I hope that those criteria, that you've used it on yourselves, and you are now filled with joy and clarity that God has elected you. And if you think to yourself, well, those are not realities in my life, that's never happened, I would love to talk to you. I'd like to see But if you are on the fence or you don't know if you should come and go, I don't know about this, just come. Come and see. Come and taste. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are encouraged to come if you've never come before. And those who have come, you will always be with him. He will never let you go. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and the promises from your word. Lord, I pray that the gospel will work in all of our hearts, that we will see more evidences, more evidences, more evidences of your love and your divine election on our life, that we didn't choose you, but you chose us. And you've used one message to save a whole multitude of people from different backgrounds, different cultures, no matter what. And all sin have been paid for through your death on the cross and resurrection. Lord Jesus, we are awaiting your return. We know that you will deliver us from the wrath to come. Motivate us, Lord, and give us boldness to share this good news to as many people as we can, Lord, to bring you glory, to bring us more brothers and sisters into your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.